0: You are listening to the Speak podcast. The podcast featuring talks from Speak, a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios.
1: Welcome to the Speak podcast, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms speak is a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories each speak talk features three
0: key moments the moment of truth the moment of transformation and the moment of impact we host pop-up events all over the world and now we are bringing our talks to your device our speakers are stepping onto the stage and into the spotlight and now onto this podcast welcome to the show
2: to another episode of The Speak Podcast, the podcast for people with ideas and stories. I'm your host for today's episode, Cheryl West Luong, producer of Speak Homecoming, which took place on March 30th, 2023 in Carrollton, Texas. Or we can just say Dallas for our non-Texan listeners. Today's episode explores a theme it seems everyone has an opinion on, if not a deep-seated reaction to any conversation about it, kids or not, experiences regarding parenting are inescapable with a topic so relevant so complex let's just turn it over to our featured published speakers dr jeff spencer kindle ray Rothus, and ralph vincent morales
0: i'm george Andriopoulos, the architect and co-leader here at speak our first talk today on the parenting episode comes from dr jeff spencer from speak love on february 16th 2023 this event took place at stage 317 and jeff was such an interesting speaker to work with i had the pleasure of collaborating with jeff personally on this talk and when i heard this story for the first time i was really moved to emotion as a father of four children myself just to hear the dedication you know sometimes We know as parents how much we sacrifice and how much we put aside for our children in order to create a life for our children that is beneficial to them, that is nurturing to them. And to hear how Jeff moved from a star coach who personally coached Olympic athletes, high level professionals, and how he put his entire career on pause when he adopted his daughter and subsequently all that they went through, I was just moved to emotion. So without further ado, I'm going to let you guys hear this. Here is Dr. Jeff Spencer with a real champion's victory from Speak Love on February 16th, 2023.
3: You can love anybody. It's a decision. You decide, you do it, it's done. It's that simple. I'm a former Olympic athlete, a sprint cyclist. That's all about short distance, power, and speed. And the objective is to beat your opponent. You get on the velodrome, your front wheel crosses the finish line before your opponent, you win and you move on to the next round. This is a bit like Caesar in the Coliseum, where if you win, it's thumbs up, if you lose, it's thumbs down, and only one gladiator walks off the field alive. You can't be timid, you can't hold back, and you have to gain access to your full potential. And my Olympic race culminated 14 years boiled down to nine seconds. And that's why you have to have a champion's mind. You have to trust your preparation Because when you trust your preparation, then you get access to the 1% or 2% that's necessary to leave it all on the field. You're probably asking yourself, well, what does this have to do with loving anybody? Well, it has to do with leaving it all on the field. And love is unconditional. And it's also the portal by which you gain access to your full potential. And if you can't love, then you can't leave it all on the field. And the most important thing that I learned as a champion, I learned from my adopted daughter, Ken. K-I-N, Ken. That's, you can love anybody. And my wife and I adopted Ken at the age of 10 from the violent, crime-ridden, drug-infested gritty seats of Northwest Columbia, the drug capital of the universe. And there's a a provision in that situation. I was 58 at the time. And I was at the height of my game. I was working with Tiger Woods. I was working with Richard Branson. I was also working with U2 and Bono. I was helping athletes win gold medals. I was helping business people exponentially grow their businesses. And my wife was curating customs homes as a green, non-toxic interior designer. And Columbia had a provision that if you were going to adopt a child, you had to go to Columbia and take legal possession of them for six weeks. And at the end of six weeks, then everybody voted. And if it was a unanimous vote, thumbs up, then you went home as a happy family. If there was one dissenting voice, then you went home empty-handed. And one of the best days of my life is when we universally decided to go all thumbs up to leave a happy family. And when we got onto the airplane, and returned back to the United States, uh, my daughter, Ken, confided in us that she thought that the blinking lights of an airplane flying around at night were shooting stars. She didn't know they were airplanes. And she had no idea that America, she thought America's around the corner from her little village. She had absolutely no clue. And when we got back to the United States, I said to my wife, I pulled her aside, Christina, I said, look, you know, raising Ken, I mean, this is a, a formidable task by a magnitude of a million. She doesn't speak any English, and we don't speak any Spanish. We have no language here. And she has virtually no school. And she has severe PTSD and ADHD from getting beat up and abused her entire life. I mean, this is formidable. She also has a parasitic-ridden body, and she has severe trust issues. And our ambition for Ken was to not just save her life, but it was to manifest her potential. And I told my wife to do that. I have to be a gold medal father. I can't be silver, I can't be bronze. And as an Olympian, I could barely get myself to say silver or bronze just to let you know. And so what I said to her, I have to, tomorrow, I have to rescind and pull back 90% of my professional availability. And along with that goes 90% of our income. And we have to hire an army of people to get Ken back to her same age counterparts, both mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And My wife cried every day for nine years and 10 months. It was so difficult dealing with Ken's insatiable appetite for cheating, uh, for her combative behavior, for her lying, and her deception. It basically put us on our knees. And the other side of this is that we didn't take a day off, and we didn't take a vacation for 10 years. We didn't put anything into our retirement. But I never cracked. I never raised my voice. I never was frustrated. I never gave her that look of disapproval. I never said anything that would suggest any shame to her because she already had enough shame to last her life a million times over. And my wife and I were very well aware of the fact that Ken had been up for adoption for five years and she wasn't adopted. So you can only imagine what she's thinking, is that nobody wants me. I'm not worthy of being adopted. And we were also aware that at a certain age, if you don't get adopted, you age out, meaning that you get put back on the streets and there's only three options. It's going to be prostitution. It's going to be drug addiction. Or worse yet, suicide. And so with Ken, I never thought that Ken's behavior was the real her. I always knew her to be this beautiful person that had this incredible sense of love and she had this irrepressible spirit, and she had this just unbelievably incredible brain. But she was acting out that which other people imposed upon her that she did not ask for. And I also felt that she was testing us to see whether or not we were worthy of her trust. And the psychology behind that was, is that I'm gonna make sure you don't love me. I'm gonna make your life hell. And if you love me despite this, then you gain my trust. And so when Ken graduated from high school with honors, I had some suspicion about the honor roll honor type of thing. And then when she went to community college and she graduated with honors, I said, you know what? This is going to happen. It's only a matter of time. And then when she graduated from community college, she went on from community college, she went on to be a scholarship student at a four-year college for the last two years and she graduated magna cum laude. She was back playing at the potential that she had back on par with her same-age counterparts. And with that, she now has a beautiful daughter, Sophia, our granddaughter, and they are two extraordinary individuals. And I want to share with you some of the truths that I know to be true from raising Kent decide. You decide you're going to love everybody. There doesn't need to be a special reason to do that. You do it because you know it's the right thing to do, and you're called to it. You don't barter with the universe or anybody, like, hey, I'll do this if I get that. No, you don't do that. You do it because it's the right thing to do, it, and it's unconditional. And when you do that, you have the full force of the most powerful force in the universe watching your back, which is love. Trust. There are moments when you face something so big and so monumental, you don't know what to do next. And that's when you have to trust the process. Trusting the process is when you do the one or two things that have to go right continuously. And then what eventually happens, you have that breakout moment where clarity shows up. You stay in the game until that shows up. You have to trust the process. You have to be bold. Bold, in a sense, is, in this dimension that we live in, the most prized commodity is energy and time. And some of the things that you're faced with that have to go right when things have to go right to be able to execute and manifest the improbable or the impossible, you try to do the math on that, you can't make sense out of it. There's not enough time and effort to make this happen, but what I can tell you is that there's always enough time and effort to do anything on behalf of other people. You're never gonna find yourself lacking. Where it gets difficult is when we get frustrated because we're not getting what we want fast enough. You also have to show up. It's the most important decision anybody can make every day, and it has to be committed to every day. Because if people showed up differently for Ken, she wouldn't have the emotional tears and the soul challenges that she did not ask for that were imposed upon her. And when we make that decision to come from championness, this is where we gain confidence in ourselves, but we also show other people what's possible. And if there's ever a point in human history where we need beacons of hope, sanity, and courage, it's today. And you always have to hold space as well. Hold space for a miracle, because sometimes that's all you got. And the magic of the miracle, and let me say this also, is that you cannot command a miracle into existence. I mean, it's a gift. And the gift of the miracle is, is that if you believe in the miracle, you're going to stay in the game indefinitely until it happens, because it keeps you in the game. And eventually, given enough time, there will be some form of miracle. It may not be extraordinary. It may be just a small little kernel. But the point is, is that when you recognize that point of that miracle, that's when you go, go from believing that you can do it to knowing that you can do it. And at that point, it's game over. If you can't love, then you can't finish the job and walk off the field knowing that you've done everything possible to succeed. And I used to think that it was destroying my opponent and I could walk off the field saying to myself and call myself a winner. But I now know that to walk off the field and call myself a winner, I have to be able to admit that the reason that I won is that I made the decision with a capital D to love, to play from my biggest champion. And my champion allowed me to be able to raise Ken. And Ken taught me how to leave it all on the field. Ken, I love you with all my heart and soul eternally. Dad. Thank you.
0: What an incredible talk. I defy anybody in the audience to not be moved to emotion when they hear that entire story. Again, that was Dr. Jeff Spencer with A Real Champions Victory from Speak Love, February 16th, 2023. We thank Jeff for his participation and for the honesty that he brought to the microphone and our stage. Our
2: next published speaker is Kindle Ray Rothis. Kindle's another speaker from the Speak Homecoming lineup that had never given a memorized talk with this kind of structure before. She's an accomplished poet and preacher, but this was a different and at times frustrating process, especially given the fact that she was giving a talk on some of the most vulnerable parts of her life that so few were privy to, a story so unbelievable. Would anyone even hear her heart through the rhythm of the story itself? here's the thing about kindle when she decides it's time to speak magic happens from speak homecoming recorded on march 30th 2023 at the k plaza arts center in Carrollton, texas here is a breaking heart still beats
4: it sounds naive but i thought i knew what i was getting into becoming a parent I'd planned, I'd prepared. I mean, you don't become a foster-to-adopt mom by forgetting birth control one night. It's a lengthy, deliberate process. And after months of trainings and certifications, I remember the caseworker asking me how many children I wanted my home to be licensed for. One, I said. As a single person entering parenthood for the first time, I didn't think that the children should outnumber the grown-up. Let's write down two, she said you never know what might happen. So I let her write down two, but I knew I would not be accepting more than one. Well, I got my first call about a baby girl who'd been abandoned in the NICU. As soon as I answered the phone, my heart started pounding with anticipation and a big, giant yes. It only took 24 hours, but it felt like forever before I got to meet her until I was finally standing there at the NICU entrance and a nurse led me past rows of beds containing the tiniest bodies all the way to the back and there she was, Layla. Bright red hair, all four pounds of her swaddled in a fluffy pink blanket. I picked her up and Instantly, irrevocably, it was like all the cells in my body reconfigured into the shape of mother. The caseworker, the social worker, the nurses all said this would be an adoption case for sure on account of the fact that she'd been abandoned for six weeks. So I thought, this is it. I'm a mom now. I will foster this one baby until she's available for adoption and then my family will be complete. What we didn't know was that within weeks, a cousin in Layla's family would come forward and the courts would move Layla to live with her. Foster parents are supposed to be prepared for this. But I wasn't prepared for how strong our bond would feel, how heart-wrenching the separation I can still Picture the caseworker loading her tiny body into this car seat that nearly swallowed her. And as they drove away, I felt my heart cave in on itself. Biologically, there are two phases to the heart's pumping cycle. Systole, when the heart contracts, and diastole, when the heart relaxes and the chambers fill with blood. About a month after Layla left, I got a call about Granada. And I was scared because my love for Layla had been, still was so complete. What if I couldn't conjure the same depth of attachment for someone new? Couldn't love with the same totality, even though that is what every child deserves? Nervously, I said yes. And 45 minutes later, she was on my doorstep. They just hand me this two-day-old baby, and my first thought was, She's not Layla. My chest contracted with grief. But my second thought was, God, I love her too. And I felt the muscles in my heart relax. Cernata was this big blue-eyed delight, the happiest baby. And as the months passed, I started to think this was the baby I was going to adopt. What I never expected was that I would get another phone call about Layla. She was 10 months old at the time, and her femur had been broken. She needed new placement immediately. I didn't hesitate, so overnight I became a single mom to two infants. I would used up all my family leave at work that year on foster care, so I picked Layla up from the hospital and somehow went back to work the next day. Meanwhile, friends brought over all the extras I now needed. Another car seat, another crib, more bottles, more diapers. My parents rearranged my house to make room. Like that scene in The Grinch where his heart grows three sizes? It was like we experienced this collective heart expansion. Two kids now? Diastole, diastole will make room. In all my dreaming of being a mom... I had never pictured being a mom of two babies three months apart in age. I had never dreamed of needing a double stroller, of carrying a baby on each hip, of poking diapers up into a cast, of waking up all night to comfort a baby who already had night terrors at the age of 10 months old. I was getting a lot of practice at welcoming the unexpected. Even so, it didn't make embracing the unexpected Easy. Around Granada's first birthday, the courts moved her to live with her biological mom. She'd been with me her whole life. It's another kid I had to release without knowing if they would be safe. I was afraid. Systole: The heart contracts. But I had to let her go. Diastole: The heart opens. Now, the state of Texas doesn't really encourage relationships between biological parents and foster parents. But at this point, I'm not exactly tethered to expectations of how things normally go. So I reached out, and while a birth parent might feel threatened by a foster parent, to my relief, not Heather. She opened her heart to me. I opened my heart to her. By the time I was getting to adopt Layla about a year later, Kernada and Heather are right there to celebrate with me. One day I asked Heather if she would be interested in making my connection to Kernada official because if something happened to Heather, if she died in a freak accident, I have no legal tie to Kernada, she could end up back in the system. And Heather says, yeah, if something happens to me, I want you to be her mom. So we hire a lawyer, we start drawing up paperwork, But before we can complete it, something else happens. A global pandemic hits. And like many people who've struggled with addiction, Karnata's mom fell back into hers. As a result, the courts moved Karnata back to live with me and I imagine Heather's heart caved in on itself. Meanwhile, there's this whole other thing happening in my life which is that I finally come out to my parents as queer. They've been so involved in my parenting journey that I harbor this secret hope that grandchildren will somehow keep us connected, sort of soften the blow of learning that I am gay, as if queerness is a bit of bad news, rather than a celebration of who I am. My parents respond, that they don't ever want me to bring home a partner. I am no longer welcome home as myself. And while this is devastating to lose my sense of home with my family of origin, there is this other side of coming out, in which it feels like coming home to myself. I am opening my heart not just to my children, to me, I am fostering an open-hearted acceptance of who I am. In her own way, Heather is doing self-acceptance work as she recovers from addiction. And as of today, she has been clean and sober for over two years. And And now we are both Granada's legal guardians. My parents and I still barely talk. But meanwhile, Heather and I are building a family. We share custody, we make decisions together. Granada spends half her time with Heather and half with me. She calls both of us mommy. We don't have any contact with Layla's family, but Heather and her new husband have embraced Layla as part of their family too. We put vacations together, we spend holidays together. I recently asked them if anything ever happened to me, if I died in a freak accident, would you take Layla? They said, absolutely. I think I've come to understand this. No matter what form parenting takes, no matter what shape love takes, control is an illusion. Love isn't beautiful because it unfolds according to plan. Love is beautiful because of the way it persists through all the unexpected twists. In my case, some of those twists felt a bit dramatic. But I think what all that change allowed me to do was practice letting my heart beat. Constrict. Open. Grieve. Open. Tighten with fear. Open. Squeeze shut in pain. Open. Again and again, the reopening. Parenthood, maybe love itself, is this continual exercise in letting go of expectation. Because there are a thousand ways I cannot ensure my kids' safety or control the outcome or dictate who they grow up to be or to love, but there is one thing I can and will do. Every time my kid comes home, I will have an open heart ready to receive them.
2: Wow, what a powerful reminder to practice opening our hearts. We all had to open our hearts a little more, including Kendall when we were in rehearsal for Speak Homecoming and in small groups, the speakers had been divided so that they could practice on Zoom. And Kendall was very nervous that her complicated story, having been condensed into 10 minutes, just wouldn't make sense. She was nervous about the level of vulnerability with people she'd just recently met, But after encouragement from the other speakers, she began her talk and the other speakers were drawn in audibly responding, sniffling at the emotion. And just as Layla leaves Kindle in the talk, right on cue, bounced in five-year-old Layla on screen, and I will never forget the emotions from the gallery. From confusion to cheering, it's at the power of great storytelling and an example of a community that is built by these speakers when they come together to put on an event like Speak provides.
0: Our final speaker for today is Ralph Vincent Morales. I first heard Ralph's story when I read his book, A Saint's Letter from the Depths of Hell, which is really the origin story of his uncle Vinny and Vinny's crew of friends from the Vietnam War. What I didn't know was Ralph's origin story, which we hear today in this talk. What's interesting about putting this into our micro-themed parenting episode is that this is sort of the opposite of what the other talks do, which is the speakers discussing their role as parents. In this talk, Ralph recounts his childhood growing up in Jamaica, Queens with a father that had a job that was, let's just say, out of the ordinary. And you probably wouldn't find a dad with this job in an 80s sitcom. I'm going to let you hear this for yourself. So without further ado, here's Ralph Vincent Morales with In the Name of the Father and of the Son.
1: Remember when you were a kid, you had that moment, that event, that life moment that stuck with you, it impacted you, and it stayed with you for the rest of your life. We've all had those events as kids. For me, that was a door. It was my father's bedroom door. Let me explain. My father used and sold drugs throughout my childhood. His bedroom was his office. And I recall looking through those cracks of that door and I would see all kinds of drug paraphernalia. I'd see marijuana, I'd see cocaine. I'd see scales. There were baggies of weed on the scales. There were tin foils of cocaine wrapped up and put in a certain spot. There was bamboo rolling paper all over the place. And what I saw through those cracks in that door, they demoralized me. They crushed me. They confused me. They made me angry. And as a kid, I hated having friends over because my father would smoke weed all the time in that room and the whole house would reek of weed. And when you're an eight, nine, and ten-year-old kid, there's nothing more embarrassing than having your friends come over, particularly one kid that I knew, his name was Louis. Louis had a mouth. Louis didn't care. He didn't care who heard him. He didn't care what he said. And so Louis would come in the house. And inevitably, he would yell out, yo man, your house smell of weed. Yeah, it did smell of weed. And I didn't want him there. I didn't want anyone there. It was excruciating to have to tell my friends and to lie to them about why they couldn't come over or what was going on or I had something going on, my mom is sick. I just would say anything to keep them from coming to my house. And what happened was that door The metaphorical meaning of that door, the oppression, the anger, the pain, the violence, the drugs, it caused me to shut down. And I wouldn't open up to others. I kept everything to myself. I became an expert at repressing my feelings, repressing my confusion. Because the one thing you have to understand, I learned at a young age that I wasn't allowed in that that room. I wasn't allowed to go beyond the threshold of that door. I learned the painful lesson of that because my father he spoke with his hands and he spoke with thick leather belts that had very big buckles at the end of them. And the bruises and the welts that I shamefully concealed under my clothing taught me the painful lesson that you don't go through that door. You don't go in that room. So I struggled. And then In January of 1980, there was a 26-year-old black man from the island of Jamaica, who was ordained a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and he was assigned to the Diocese of Brooklyn. And a week after his ordination, this young man, his name was Frank Black, he was assigned to my home parish in Jamaica, presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now mind you, the priests in that parish As far as I remember, they were all incredible. They were all awesome for the community. They were great for the kids. And yet, Father Frank was of a different breed. Father Frank taught us that we could go beyond and be much more than what our circumstances would otherwise dictate that we were supposed to be. That touched my soul because up until that point, I didn't know what I was. But he taught me that, that I could be more than what my circumstances would otherwise dictate. And I took that to heart. And I realized that he was right, that I could do that. And so he became a surrogate father to me. He was a man of inspiration a man of transformative charisma, and a man of love. He became a surrogate father to me, a father that I never had. Now, when I turned around 16, I realized I'd had enough. I'd had enough of the violence, I'd had enough of the drugs, I'd had enough of the beatings, I had enough of the craziness, I had enough of the haphazard nature, the complete chaos that was my life. And I realized, I was going to teach my father a lesson. I knew what I wanted to do, but I was petrified. So one night, when my father wasn't home, I walked up to that door. And I extended my trembling hand toward the doorknob. Now, mind you, this door caused me all kinds of consternation, all kinds of fear. But I was determined. I went to that door, and I slowly turned the doorknob, and I can still hear the creak of that doorknob and the, the creaking of the door as it opened. And I went into the room, and I knew where my father kept his stash of cocaine. And I knew exactly where the tins were. So I grabbed two fistfuls, as much as I could, of the, cocaine, the tins of cocaine. I ran out of that room through the threshold of pain that was that door. I put those tins of cocaine into the garbage. I took that garbage outside and it was thrown out that night. That was gonna teach him a lesson. I was going to be the hero. Well, later that night, my father got home. And the calm and the quiet that was my house became absolute chaos. He went into a berserk rage of violence, cursing, screaming. Things were flying all over the house, punching his fists through the walls, screaming and cursing and threatening. And I realized that was because of me. Now, I had a cousin who was in the family business, and my father was convinced that my cousin had somehow gotten into our house and stolen his stuff to sell on his own. And my father said he was gonna take care of my cousin. So after what seemed like an eternity, my father stormed out of the house to wreak havoc on other people's lives. And I remember sitting there And I was thinking, my God, I just caused all this craziness. There were holes all over the place. Anything that wasn't nailed down was strewn about the house. That was my fault. And on top of all that, now he's going to go and kill my cousin. The, The pain, the confusion, and the agony was unreal. So I realized at that moment there was only one thing to do. I had to run away. I'd had enough. It was just too much. I ran away. I ran out of there, I got the hell out of there. I ran away. But of course, me being me, I ran away to presentation, to the rectory. I ran away to go talk to Father Frank. I got to the rectory, and the first thing Father Frank did, picked up the phone, called my mom. Lily, don't worry, Ralph's here. Don't, he's OK. I'll take care of this. He's all right. Hung up the phone. I let loose with a torrent of emotion, a complete waterfall of feelings. I told him about the pain. I told him about the lies. I told him about the false impression that I was trying to live up to. I told him about the beatings. I told him about the drugs. I told him everything, everything, everything that I had been hiding for years. And he listened. And for the first time in my life, I had someone listen to me. For the first time in my life, I was able to share my truth, as embarrassing as it was. And as much as my friend Louis would laugh at me for saying all this stuff, I let it out. And Father Frank spoke in very measured, very loving, very caring, very nurturing words. And he taught me that it was okay to acknowledge my faults. It was okay to acknowledge my pain. It was okay to be angry at what was going on at home. And while I could not divest myself of being my father's son, I could hopefully be a son who one day could be a good father. I had Father Frank to thank for that. He taught me that. Now, that's not to say that I've had a charmed life since that transformative event in the rectory all those years ago. Far from it. The door, the metaphorical door was never far off. Was it while I was in high school or while I was a college student at Georgetown down in DC or during my law school years at St. John's University And then during my career as a prosecutor in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, where I became a renowned trial attorney, where I did great things. And then later on in private practice as a trial attorney throughout the courts of the state, I've earned a reputation of being an incredible trial attorney and a great advocate. And yet, the door was always there. The door never really left. But I'm proud to say that Since those years, I've achieved great things, and I'm proud of my achievements. But again, even during those prideful moments, the door would come back, and yet there's the door closing in on that dream, trying to close it, trying to crush it, trying to keep me from attaining it. There are times when I've tried to be the best husband and father that I could be, and yet there's the door creaking open, reminding me of my insecurities, reminding me of my vulnerabilities reminding me that you can't do it. You can't do it. You're gonna fall short. And I had the nurturing experience of Father Frank to ground me and to bring me back and to shove that door aside. Now, my father and I have forged, I guess you could say an uneasy reconciliation in the years since my mother passed away very suddenly back on July 26th of 2002. Ironically, my father found Jesus. And my father recently apologized to me for all the things that he did to me and to my family. And while obviously I accepted that apology and the apology meant something to me, when my kids asked me, dad, what feelings do you have for your father? I I can't say that I love him. I can't say that I have any real feelings one way or another for him. I feel pity. I I guess I feel some sense of compassion because obviously he never had a Father Frank in his life. But either way, I am at peace with the complex consequences of being my father's son. Thank you very much. Peace and love to everybody.
0: Boy, that was an interesting spin on our micro theme parenting for this episode. Again, that was Ralph Vincent Morales with In the Name of the Father and of the Son. A fun fact about this talk and really about all of the talks that we work with our speakers to build. These talks are typically six to 10 minutes, and one of the biggest issues that a lot of our speakers have when we work with them to coach them through these talks is to keep these talks under 10 minutes. Having a concise talk as a speaker is so impactful to the audience. And so we really hit home that point when we coach our speakers through writing and memorizing their talks. Funny enough, during the live performance of the talk, Ralph gave us a couple of surprises, including planting Father Frank right in the audience for everybody to meet. Because of the surprise that Ralph had planted in the crowd, let's just say the talk did not stick to the 10-minute guide originally. But that's okay. We enjoyed the talk and we thank Ralph so much for bringing the honesty to the stage and telling us this incredible origin story.
2: That will do it for today's episode of The Speak Podcast. Once again, we see how Speak gives a platform to people with powerful stories and ideas that continue to have an impact long after the events are over. We hope you enjoyed these talks from three of our published speakers, and we hope that you'll join us again next week for another episode as three more speakers step onto the stage, into the spotlight, and onto your device. See you next time.
0: Speak Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios. Executive produced by Fred P. Banning, Jason Martin, and George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Champions Day, is by Lupus Nocti. Incidental music, Melting Places, is by Andres Kantu. Music and sound effects licensed through epidemic sound. The Speak Podcast is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever
1: podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow Speak at Speak underscore Event on Twitter and at
4: Speak
0: Event on all other social media platforms. Visit our website, SpeakEvent.com, for upcoming events, channel partner, sponsorship, and Speak at Work opportunities. And follow all the Grid podcasts produced by Lunchpad 516 Studios.